Welcome, everybody, to another episode of After Further Review with Mark Ferrer, John Pelkey. Jeff Taylor is our producer on the board. And welcome to Deep Dive 6. Wow. Dodgers, Giants, the best and the worst of rivals. Before we get going, guys, uh, I do want to give a great, huge, big shout out to my mom, Jan Ferreira. It is her 83rd birthday today. And uh, happy birthday, mom. Happy Happy birthday, birthday. Nana. (laughs) Thank you, John. What you want for a birthday? Somebody to replace me on the show? Perhaps. Perhaps uh, she she is. She's asking for Dane Becker. Happy birthday to my favorite fan. I know. Jeff just loves my mom. I do. No, I get it. I get it. She's his favorite listener. So we're going to do the Dodgers Giants, the best and the worst of rivals. And this really is a story of an iconic rivalry, obviously spanning well over a century, covers four different cities. And the character of those cities do play a lot into this rivalry. It's, It's a story of absolute huge highs, low lows, not just for the team, but for their fans and for baseball itself. It's a story of great pennant races heartbreaking losses, larger-than-life characters, and also a story of mayhem and violence on the field and off. Excellent. Both teams have had a lot of success. Each have won 23 pennants in their history, and they have a combined 14 world championships between them. They've had swaths of time where they haven't been competitive, unless, of course, it's against the other team in order to play spoiler at the end of the season to ruin the other team's chances at the postseason. And at the end of the day, this rivalry has created an absolute awful lot of drama, even though these two teams have never met in the postseason, John. That's remarkable to me. You said that earlier. We were talking about it, is that for all of that and the success that both teams have had, I think you said 23 pennants apiece, Uh, um, that they've never met. Now, obviously, for a large percentage of that time, it was impossible because you didn't have playoffs um, if you were, uh, you know, you just win the pennant, but they have had a couple of, we need to win this playoff to win the pennant. So in, in, in some ways they've had, yeah. they've had a little bit of, they've had post season, post regular season games against one another. Although no, because those, those playoffs have, are considered the regular season. Yeah, see, I don't consider them the regular season. Well, I mean, I think base, I'm going to say baseball does 154 or 162 game season, depending on what it was. If you had to pay, play games beyond that, the scheduled yeah. 154, 162, Mark, I, I think you might agree with me. Those are post regular season <laughs> games. Well, you know, I mean, philosophically, do I agree with you? Well, I think, I think. You'd have an argument. Depends on how many drinks I have. I might either argue with you to the death or uh, or agree with you. But according to Major League Baseball, everything they play during those three games or two games or whatever it is, that's counted in the regular season stats. Sure. And as we know, postseason stats aren't included. So let's and, start and with the story. And according to Major League Baseball, they have a world's championship and they really only play in two countries. So, you know, so there it is. Yeah. All but right. they have players from all over the world. They do. They do so, have players from all over the world. Though, again, they consider the statistics that they had prior to 1947 uh, statistics, even though they were not allowing a large percentage of the people who were the best baseball players in the world play Indeed. in their league. Though, and, we will learn uh, they do remedy that at some point. They do remedy that. And as we're talking about that in the course right. of this discussion. I won't interrupt Deep Dive 6. No, it's fine. Right. I'd like you to interrupt. This is good. Just, 
chance to go after Major League Baseball. I know it is. Not considering a three-game playoff after the regular season, the postseason. Nope. It's part of the regular season, Johnny. Right, well, you know what? Then if I'm the other not owner. Scheduled. It's, not, it's, not a, it's not a scheduled playoff game. See what I, I mean? know, but it's not a scheduled regular season game as well. This makes no sense to me. Well, you it know, you have makeup games. You don't have makeup games during the regular season. You don't so. have makeup games, but those are makeup games. Those are games that you, you missed of the 154 or 162, depending on what point in baseball you're talking about. I'm sorry, it's a postseason game. It's a right. postseason game. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's, we'll, we'll move on. Let's start with the first iconic character of this great rivalry, the storied rivalry. Uh, and again, you know, we, we talk about Boston and New York as another great rivalry in Major League Baseball. They've had postseason experiences. Giants never have. And the Dodgers have never had posting experience with each other. It's very interesting. So John McGraw, first iconic character for the Giants uh, or the Dodgers, really. He was a Hall of Fame manager, has more wins than any National League manager, and has uh, only second to Connie Mack in terms of all of Major League Baseball. He had a great. Uh, he was a great player in his day as well. He's a hard scrabble kind of guy. He would find any way to win. Spiking. Beaning, fighting, collisions, retaliations. And uh, from 1902 to 1932, the Giants were managed by this guy. Wow. Now, during this tenure, during at least the first half of this tenure, the Giants were really the hammer to the Dodgers' nail. And, and, and this repeats itself, this uh, hammer-nail scenario throughout the century, uh, but in this particular case, it was there. There was nothing. There was not even any spoilers to ruin that for that first half from 1902 to about 1914. And a big reason for all that success for the Giants was Christy Matheson, who was a remarkable pitcher who won 373 games, 2.13 ERA, and he was one of the all-time great screwball pitchers. As a matter of fact, the Giants and the Dodgers have three of the all-time great screwball pitchers throughout their history, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Christy Matheson, of course, the great Christian gentleman. I want to throw that out there. That was his nickname, and he certainly was. And tragically, his career came to an uh, an early uh, an early end. Well, he went to uh, he he went and fought in the Great War, and uh, when he did that, he was part of the chemical weapons unit. Yep. And uh, he accidentally got exposed to During chemical weapons, exercise, weapons I believe. Gas. And yep. And he um, never really recovered. He had uh, the tuberculosis was. Uh, you know, exacerbated. He had it in his family, but he never really recovered. And it's very sad. But yes, they nicknamed him the Christian gentleman because he was. He was a nice guy, didn't play on Sundays. Really the polar opposite of John McGraw. <laughs> but but they got along. They were big friends. Of course, he was a great pitcher. Of course, he's going to get along with, with John McGraw. Yeah. Um, you want to get along with your star pitcher. That's you really do. 101. So there, there, there was a skirmish, however, in 1910. Uh, Art Devlin, who was the Giants' third baseman in 1910, they were playing um, at uh, at the at the uh, Superbas. Is that how you pronounce it? Superbas, the Superbas, the, the Superbas home field. I think they called it Washington Field at the time. This is 1910. The Dodgers, before they were the Dodgers, were known as the Superbas, yes. which was named after a vaudeville act. Superbas. Think about that. That's a mm -hmm. That's a dumb name. Uh, so at any rate, they're said playing. This was going to be even-handed. No, no, no. It's it's going to be. Believe me, it's going to be. Uh, but he started getting heckling by, by by a fan. 
then more fans, then an entire section started heckling this guy, and he just had enough. He went into the stands, started beating the guy to a pulp, actually knocked him unconscious. The rest of the fans join in. Then the rest of the Giants, including John McGraw, join in. It's uh Remarkable. Why do I think he wasn't last to that party? <laughs> yes, exactly. And so finally they break up the fracas and uh, Devlin leaves, almost gets hit by a bottle as he's leaving. He was arrested, but fined 50 bucks. That was it. Wasn't suspended. <laughs> Just part of the game back then. So the rivalry really got going. 1914, McGraw fired his best friend, his par- former partner, business partner, and his current pitching coach for the Giants. His name was Wilbert Robinson. Fired him. They, they still don't know what what happened. They really don't. They got into some sort of argument. Some people think that it was his pitching, coaching, that, uh, that made the Giants viable again. They went to three straight pennants in 11, 12, and 13, and, and maybe Wilbert Robinson got too much credit, one of those ego things that we've heard so much about. No one knows, though. But right away, and this won't be the first time that managers have swapped teams uh, in this rivalry. It's it's remarkable how much this has happened, or at least how much people have wanted it to happen as well. So he wins, Robinson wins two pennants in five years, wins a pennant right away in 1916. Uh, in that pennant, the Giants try and play spoiler, but the Dodgers are going to win the final game and go on to the World Series, and John McGraw is so upset with this that he literally leaves the game, leaves the game before it's over, never to be seen from again until next season. And it just Robinson said he just sort of pissed all over the pennant. It's like, what are you doing? That because that was the story, of course, as opposed to the soup. The uh, well, they were called the Robins at this point. Okay, they they went from Superbas to the Superba. Dodgers. You can't say it. You I, cannot say it. Superba, Superba, the Brooklyn Superba. Superbas. I can't say. Okay, Superba. They went from the Superbas to the Dodgers, and then to the Robins when Wilbert Robinson took over. They literally named the team after him. Which is very so perhaps the dispute with John McGraw was sort of an ego thing. You named the team after yourself. So yeah. I'm thinking maybe Wilbur Robinson, not the humblest of pitching coaches. Yeah, well, there you go. Maybe maybe the ego problem was not as much McGraw's as it was his. So they win the pennant in 16. The Giants win it in 17. The Dodgers win it again in 20. And it sparks another giant run. And this is one of the first times it happens a lot when the other team's success sparks a huge run by you. It'll happen 30 years later. It'll happen another uh, 20 years or so after that as well. The Giants win four straight pennants in the early 20s. And during the next 18 years, however, the Dodgers play nail again. In 18 years, they finished fifth place or worse 14 times. During this time, they became known as Dem Bums all over Brooklyn. And this led all the way to 1934. The Giants had just won a World Series in 33 with new manager Bill Terry, who had formerly played under John McGraw. And Bill Terry was being interviewed by the press, by the National League press. Bill Terry uh, was being asked about all the teams in Major League Baseball. And he got to the Dodgers, and they said, what do you think of the Dodgers, Bill Terry? And he said, "Uh, oh, are they still in the league? So, yeah, that was rough. That pissed off the Dodger fans. They were very upset, and so much so that when he and Casey Stengel uh, got together the first series in the season at Ebbets Field for pictures, the fans threw firecrackers at both of them. (laughs) They were just as mad at Stengel, who was the manager of the Dodgers, and there's Bill Terry right there. They were just as mad at, at them 
at at Stengel for fraternizing with Bill Terry. And of course, sure enough, even though Brooklyn's languishing in sixth place in 1934, comes down to the end of the season. The Giants are fighting for the pennant against the St. Louis Cardinals. They need to beat the Dodgers, and the Dodgers beat them. So a little too much hubris out of Bill Terry and one of the first spoiler incidences with the Dodgers and the Giants. And and fans were just full of angst during the 30s, really, and 40s. Now, granted, the Depression was on. People yeah. were upset, but there were so many fights in mainly Ebbets Field, but also the Polo Grounds. One fan was quoted, John, as saying that there were more fights in the fans than in all the boxing arenas throughout the country. And boxing was an incredibly popular sport. So that's it, now it that would mean there were like there was a fight and a half. Exactly. But I've never heard it called a boxing arena. I mean, I guess that's just well, an old yeah. fashioned term, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at history, early 20th century, when boxing was uh, late 19th, early 20th century, the, those arenas, boxing money built those arenas because you weren't getting them built uh, for basketball at that point in time. So, again, it, it gives away when the quote was said, which was in the 30s. Yeah. And, and, and it begs the question, why so passionate? I mean, the Dodger fans, again, 18 years of just more abundity, 14 of those years finishing fifth or worse. Why were they so passionate? And obviously it's the proximity to the team, but it also becomes, it's also about the culture because the Brooklynites really did feel like they were second class citizens. It was a, it was a town of a lot of immigrants. They were working class and the New Yorkers were the elites, John giants were the toast of wall street, toast of Broadway. So already it was set up to not only be this battle between the teams, but the battle between the cities as well. And that would continue when they moved to San Francisco and, and people Los need Angeles. To remember, people need to remember that the Giants played in Manhattan. And even though the Yankees were always thought of as the toast of Manhattan, they actually play in the Bronx. They don't play in Manhattan. But to, to your point, the Giants were right there in Manhattan. I believe that stadium was um, on the... Uh, up Washington West, Heights, so it was pretty West pretty side. high up, yeah, yeah, really high up on the Upper West Side, uh, and uh, they were, but they were the team of Manhattan to that point. And, you, yes. and you're right, Brooklyn felt like second class citizen, as everybody does to Manhattan, really at that point. But the Giants actually were in Manhattan, not the Bronx. So the Dodger fans are just suffering these humiliations after humiliations. In 1938, there's a story of a guy named Robert Joyce who was an upstanding guy, 33 years old. He'd held a job all throughout uh, the Depression, which was not easy for people to do. And uh, now it's 1938. He goes to a Dodger game. He thinks they're thinks they're turning around. They beat the Giants. That They knocked the Giants out of first place. He's so happy he goes to the local watering hole. He starts wanting to talk Dodger baseball with all the fans in there, with all the Brooklynites. And they're not having any of it. I mean, they're not going to be swayed. And this Joyce guy, he's, he's insisting he's right. He's saying, come on now, the Dodgers are going to turn it around. You know, it's Durka Durka time. And and all the fans in the bar, they remind him the Giants had Carl Hubble. Carl Hubble, oh, by the way, uh, Hall of Famer, another great screwballer in the Giants-Dodgers history. He also was the uh, hurler that uh, four years prior had struck out Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, Al Simmons, and Joe Cronin successively in the All-Star wow. game. Wow. He, the, the, the Brooklyn fans in the bar said, oh, by the way, you have Mel Ott. They have Mel Ott, too. It's a Hall of Famer. Ended up with over 500 home runs. And they just weren't going to be swayed. This guy insisted he was right. He said, you sound like Giants fans. 
You sound like Giants fans. And they weren't convinced. So he left the bar, goes to his office, gets two guns, comes back to the bar and shoots it up, kills two people. Brooklyn Dodger fans. He went crazy. And this is considered by many historians as the first homicide related uh, incident to the Dodgers and the Giants. And Robert Joyce, by the way, and this is you couldn't write it. They wouldn't allow it in screenplay was a postal clerk. Yeah. Yeah. So going going postal very well. Yeah. Yeah. He'd done very well in the post post office. But yes, the first homicide related to the Dodger Giant rivalry and unfortunately won't be the last. Mm -hmm. But he was on to something, Johnny, because in 1938, they actually began their turnaround. And that's because they brought in Larry McPhail to run the team. And we talked about Larry McPhail in the 1941 deep dive. We talked about Larry McPhail in the Cincinnati Reds deep dive because he came from Cincinnati. He was the first guy to install lights, Major League Baseball. He was the first one to um, bring radio broadcasting to the New York area. Believe it or not, they didn't have it even in 1938. And he was the first one to bring television broadcasting to all of Major League Baseball. And you know what else he did? He hired Leo DeRocher and Branch Rickey. There's Leo. And then Branch Rickey right there. Look at that guy. Looks like a good guy. Now, at this point in time, the Dodgers are on their way back, and the Giants start to suck. So from 38 to 49, they finished fifth or worse eight times, no higher than third. And meanwhile, under Larry McPhail, and then later under Branch Rickey, they start to build. They load up. 47, they bring in Gil Hodges, Duke Snyder, and, of course, they bring in the great Jackie Robinson. Now, of course, most owners were against this. We all know the history of, of breaking the color barrier. But chief among them was Giants owner Horace Stoneham. Horace Stoneham inherited the team from his dad, 1936. And Leo DeRocher once said of Horace Stoneham, he said, to say Horace drinks is like saying Frank Sinatra sings. Big drinker, John, but died when he was 86. So I don't know he what was, they're telling you. I guess so. I mean, I guess there's something to say uh, for that. Uh, so Sonam told the other owners he um, regarding Jackie Robinson. He said, if Jackie Robinson was brought up to the majors, blacks in Harlem would burn down the polo grounds. Now, yes, Washington Heights is near Harlem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was becoming more African-American at that point in time. Okay. But I don't know why he thought they would bur- burn it down. I mean, yeah. they, you'd think they'd be celebrating. Wow. Yeah. Trump so anyway, manager. luckily, luckily, uh, you know, Branch Rickey was able to pull that through and pull off the greatest feat in Major League Baseball, if you ask me, and which is why the Dodgers, no matter how much you hate them, if you're a Giants fan, have to be regarded as, a, you know, a, a Mount Rushmore of Major League Baseball franchises. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And really, if you another a great deep diver, anybody do your homework on Branch Rickey. And he had been uh, he, he was a great baseball guy. And he knew there's a lot of talent in the, the Negro Leagues at that time. But uh, he, he also uh, was uh, he was on a crusade. Yes, because he had been a college baseball coach and had come up against uh, racism there because he had an integrated team. And uh, he and, and this is just an opportunity for me to take a swipe at Notre Dame. And uh, there was a famous incident where he went to play in South Bend and was told he couldn't play. He couldn't check his player couldn't check into the hotel because they didn't serve uh, yeah. African-Americans at that point in time. And uh, yeah, so uh, the Mahatma himself, Branch Rickey. No doubt about it. And he was a very pious guy as well. Was a great friend of uh, Leo DeRocher, kind of uh, reminiscent of the Matheson uh, McGraw 
friendship because when we go back to Leo DeRocher, he was very much in the mold of John McGraw. Hard scrabble, find any way to win, spiking, beaning, collisions, retaliations. If his mother was running the bases, he said, that he would trip her if it meant winning the game. That's right. I'm saying this quote on the day of my mom's birthday. Oh, well, DeRocher's mom, it should be said, uh, she was a smart base runner, but she didn't have big speed. So tripping her, you know, yeah. not, not a bad idea. So what happened uh, was that DeRocher was great. He was there. And soon after, the, the Dodgers uh, really, really started loading up. They got Roy Campanella soon after that. Don Newcomb and the Boys of Summer had arrived in Brooklyn. This was a team that was going to go on for great, great success. There they are. Look at those guys. Now, Leo was suspended. Leo DeRocher, though, was suspended in 47. The, the same year Jackie came up by the commissioner, Happy Chandler. He uh, was suspended for, quote, a result of an accumulation of unpleasant incidences, which I think is hilarious. And uh, that was hilarious. And um, so there it is. It was mainly associated with gambling and all of the associations with yeah. gambling. Yeah, he Much knew a lot of gangsters, hung out yes. with a lot of gangsters. He did, including oh, yeah. George Raft, who wasn't actor really gangster. a gangster, but he's an actor. He acted like a gangster. And uh, so essentially at this point in time, he came back in 48, but the Dodgers weren't going very well. And he and Ricky, even though they got along, they had battles. And so what happened at that point in time is Walter O'Malley, who was at, at that point kind of weaseling his way into, into ownership. He starts out as a legal counsel. He gets a few shares of stock. He starts buying up some more. Larry McPhail then goes overseas uh, in World War II comes back and he's not part of it anymore. So so O'Malley is really weaseling his way and he convinces Ricky to fire DeRocher. So he does. And DeRocher starts managing the Giants the very next day. One day it's the Dodgers. The next day it's the Giants. Horace Stoneham fired Melot, who evidently couldn't handle pitchers, and put in Leo DeRocher. And, uh, you know, the, the all the boroughs were pretty dumbfounded by that change. And it wouldn't be the last... Walter O'Malley's machinations, oh, by the way. So, obviously, the rivalry heats up even more. This friendship that Leo and Jackie had was no more. They were bitter enemies, ugly rivals, like Dodgers and Giants are. And uh, at this point in time, the Dodgers were the better team. They won the pennant in Jackie's rookie year. They won the pennant again in 49 when he won the MVP. And they lost the pennant on the last weekend of the 1950 season to the Philly Philadelphia Whiz Kids. So the Giants, however, were slowly getting better because Willie Mays in 1951 comes to town. Now, he struggled at first. DeRocher was very nurturing of him. But his energy, it's Willie Mays, people. It was infectious. They loved him. This is, this is the greatest living ball player right now in our time. He's one of the top five of all time. I don't think that's arguable at all. And people saw that. They saw that raw talent, that raw enthusiasm. So much so that really, if you look at Willie Mays' career, he sort of rose above not only the game, but the rivalry itself. And, and, and the locations in which he played. Uh, no one was ever really dealt a worse hand at that point. There's a great DeRocher quote about uh, Mays because because Mays could uh, he could hit, throw, hit for power, run. I mean, he was he was a five tool player and yeah. probably six or seven because they said nobody was better at distinguishing the catcher signs. He'd get to second. He will first time in the game he gets to second. He steals the signs and you know that. Uh, but the DeRocher said of Mays at one point, if he could cook, I'd marry him. So you know, <laughs> they, yeah. I love it. 
I love it. Yeah, Willie Mays, un- unbelievable, and yet yeah, is in the polo ground, which was how deep was the polo ground, John? Uh, it was one thousand one hundred and sixty-two feet to dead center, and I think it was nine hundred feet down the power alleys. And what was the average? <laughs> That's Ebbets Field. We're 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 just going off on uh, on a silly <laughs> yes. thing right here. What was the average wind speed uh, in Candlestick Park? Blowing into the hitter's face, yes, uh, eighty-two degrees on average, eighty-two miles per hour on average, on average. Which on just average. seemed they wouldn't have played the game, but you know, it's a different <laughs> time. Like, but, uh, hurricane, we got hurricane force winds out there, but uh, we're playing a doubleheader. So. Uh, so his energy was infectious. Everyone loved him. He was above the rivalry. Even Dodger fans loved Willie Mays. So now by August, Charlie Dressen, who's the manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, he's bragging that the Giants are out of it. They're 13 and a half back in August. And after a series in Brooklyn, he told the team to taunt the Giants. Now, we, we had that picture of Ebbets Field. There was a door between the two clubhouses in Ebbets Field, John. Just one single door separated the visitor and the home clubhouse. And he literally had his team yell and mock and sing silly songs. Oh, they bang on the door, yeah. yeah. Jackie Robinson was apparently one of the ringleaders of that because Jackie was a, a competitor. And particularly once he uh, he was out from under Branch Rickey's dictum that for three years you can't fight back. Yes. Um, Jack, Jackie, Jackie'd mix it up. So he'd bang on the door and scream at the other team as well. No, he would, and he hated the Giants. Hated they, them. They Absolutely. actually had to bolt down that door in the early 50s because <laughs> it got so ridiculous. Oh and Dressen loved it because he wanted to he wanted to be one up on DeRocher because DeRocher was the, the big star, the big celebrity. Oh, yeah. And and Dressen wanted to uh, you know, be the guy that actually beat their butts. And so they were 13 and a half games ahead. But right after that series, the Giants go on a tear. They win 16 in a row. They finish the season 39 and 8. They, they tie the Dodgers. This is only the second time this happens in all of Major League Baseball. Happened in 46 prior to that. They split the first two games of the three game playoff, considered part of the regular season. And they come back from a 4 1 deficit in the bottom of the ninth. And of course, Bobby Thompson's shot around the world ended it. And there it is. There's Bobby Thompson. There's him swinging the bat. There's the celebration. We can just stay on this for a while. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Living the now, Mark. Yes, indeed. Now, but was that the whole story? A lot of people don't think so. The Giants actually instituted a sign-stealing system in July, and this is, this is bona fide reporting. They've admitted it. Bobby and Thompson admitted it they years admitted and years it. later. The clubhouse for the Giants was in center field. And so they put a spy out there, Herman Franks in this case, who end, would end up being a manager of the Giants in the 60s. Uh, he'd look through the telescope. He'd decipher signs. Then DeRocher had the Polo Grounds electrician, a Dodger fan, install a buzzer in the clubhouse connected to the dugout phone. So that would have been your dad's gig, John. Yeah, yeah. Because your dad was an electrician he'd for the White House. He, yeah, he would have been on top of that. He probably would have enjoyed working at the Polo Grounds. Oh, I'm sure he would. And there's a shot of the polo grounds. I just want to remind me, it looks like a horse racing track. That's how far it is to dead center. It's just, it is as bad a decision. And should be pointed out that when the Dodgers moved to L.A. and they played in the Coliseum, which was essentially the same layout, uh, they put a fence at a a reasonable distance. Yeah. And it's no sense. It is interesting, though, because part of the problem Willie Mays had when he went to Candlestick Park uh, is that, he just wasn't used to how little room he had. Yeah. You know, think ball just went out. 
where right. Willie would chase them all down in the polo grounds. So, right, and yeah. the polo grounds were built for baseball before uh, home run hitting became a thing. And right. you know, you you a home run was you hit it over somebody's head and you were able to, to, to inside the park run. And so the polo grounds was built for that. And why the Giants didn't once. Babe Ruth changed the game forever and turned it into a power-hitting game. Why they didn't shorten the fence in center? We talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. Which makes Willie's, you know, 660 home runs even more remarkable. Absolutely. He didn't play at the launching pad, people. No, he did not. So they install a buzzer from the clubhouse to the phone in the dugout. Franks would buzz it once for a fastball, twice for anything else. At that point in time, the bullpen then would signal the batter, through a series of prearranged signs, usually crossed and uncrossed legs. That was the system. But really, if you look at it, if you dig deep below the surface, the evidence suggested that it really didn't help them. Giants scored less runs at home after the system was in place. Bobby Thompson was the only Giant to have a better season in the second half, but most of that success was uh, was on the road. 16 home runs in the second half, 13 of those were on the road. The Giants were two games better at home on the road, so... The evidence just doesn't suggest that, just like it doesn't suggest it with the Astros, even though they were vilified and thrown at and treated like pariahs. They had a much better road record in 2017, and in the World Series, they won two games. So, eh, you know, yeah, there that is. So also mechanical sign stealing, by the way, which is what that was considered. That was not illegal until the 60s. So yet another example of the Giants stretching the rules from John McGraw on. Yeah, through Barry Bonds and beyond, stretching the rules, uh, taking advantage of the legal loopholes. So that heartbreaker in 51, that devastated the Dodgers. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin said it, it, it stuck with her forever. She was like eight, and it was worse than Dodger losses to Yankees. It was just devastating. But again, like 30 years before, it spurred the Dodgers onto a great run. They won three of the next four pennants, won a World Series, very first time in their history Holy in 55. Yeah. And uh, and the Giants, of course, won the World Series in the other year. And that year was 54 when Carl Ferrillo, all-star, uh, all-star right fielder for the Brooklyn Dodgers, he, uh, he'd had enough. Over the years, he and DeRocher, who surprised, grew to hate each other. <laughs> That's just how it went. Every what was time. It, what, I think the quote was about DeRocher from, uh, from my 41 deep dive is he had an infinite capacity for making a bad situation worse. People said that about That's him. So great. Yes, and he would always yell to the pitcher from the dugout when Farilla was up, stick it in his ear, which means hit him in the head, hit him in essentially. Head. Yep. But that pre batting helmets, by the way, really happened. But it got inside Farilla's head. DeRocher knew it would. And Farilla had enough, especially when he actually did get hit. It was on the wrist, but he did get hit. He was very, very pissed. He's yelling back and forth. He goes to the pitcher, yells at DeRocher, goes to first base. And then the next batter has a 2 2 count. He calls timeout. Farilla from first base runs into the Giants' dugout, runs into the dugout and starts pummeling Leo so, DeRocher. So great! It's just classic. It, it's just it's just terrific. And the whole the whole sequence of it is great because it's like it's two and two. So the guy at the plate now has got to protect the plate. You got two strikes on you. It's yeah. important. But no, no, no. Farilla's 
I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe he thought uh, he needs to take a little breather. What am I going to do? I don't know. Go take a swing at DeRocher. But he calls time out to run in there. It's not like he he gets down there and he just runs over. He calls time out. Yes. Smart baseball. Thought it through. And he got him in a headlock. It was like the Nolan Ryan, uh, Robin Ventura thing for a a while. And and he was pissed too because it was, you know, the day before there was a bean ball war right. between the two and they had knocked down Snyder they had knocked down Campanella so and DeRocher was just prickly I mean DeRocher was one of those guys and 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 and, and your baseball players back then Mark were decidedly blue collar and yes, uh, so, so you know it was uh yeah it's just one of the great moments in baseball and I just love it. it's a two-two count poor who's up to bat who's like all right I gotta protect the plate short I, think Cox, I think Cox is the batter's last it's game it's a and then time what the hell oh Jesus yeah, like I don't have enough of Here but we I, go. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. Here we go again. So that same year, O'Malley uh, stunned the baseball world again. Uh, more machinations. He fired Dressen right after Dressen had won a, 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 a pennant. Yep. And he hired Walter Alston. Now, everyone said, Walter, who? Who is this guy? But it was a very significant move for the Dodgers for the next 20 years. Walter Alston is a Hall of Fame manager. And... uh just had a great, great run. There he is right there. Good old Walt Alston. Now, by 57, the Giants were really struggling financially. And Stoneham, Horace Stoneham, he notices that the Braves, they moved from uh, Boston to Milwaukee in 1953 and literally quadruple their attendance immediately. They led the major leagues in attendance, didn't oh, they? Oh, yeah. First year in Milwaukee, by far, County Stadium, which is not a huge stadium. They broke stretch. $2 million, which was unheard of back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Stoneham was thinking of moving the Giants to Minneapolis because they had a farm team there, and so he could have rights, if you will, to it. And that's a, that's a, whole, <laughs> that's a whole thing to secure yeah. the rights to an to a city to a uh, to an area to move your team there. So he tells Walter O'Malley about it. Walter O'Malley says, "Well, I can tell you the truth. I've been thinking about moving to Los Angeles. You know, Brooklyn's not helping me. I want to get out of decrepit Ebbets Field. I want to get out of this neighborhood that's going to hell. And so I'm going to move to L.A." So they teamed up, and uh, obviously we we know the story. But we if you if you look at it, O'Malley was doing well. He wasn't doing great, but he was doing well. The Dodgers had just been to the World Series the year before, and it was sort of a greed thing. He just wanted more. He wanted more, and it turned out to be a great move for him, obviously. I want to defend him just a little uh, because Ebbets Field, which was a crown jewel of a stadium when it was built uh, and had – chandeliers and the, I mean, it's just a beautiful stadium. If you look at old pictures of Ebbets field at that point, that was a bigger issue than the team on the field was the field itself. There was no, there was no place for it to grow. You couldn't enlarge it because it was right in the middle of the borough. There was no parking. So O'Malley, to your point, yes, follow the money, always follow the money, but he, that was a stadium that needed an upgrade and he was prepared for that upgrade. He was, he had all kinds of plans he uh, retractable roof stadium re- retractable roof. He just needed the approval by the city. Robert Moses got in his way. Bad and this story is, I mean, everyone sort of knows the story, but it, it's worthy of a deep dive. Just the move itself. Yeah, it's, you know, there's political intrigue in it. There's double dealing. There's m- municipal threats. No, and and don't take and and also you got to look at uh, Los Angeles and what they were able to do. And there was a young and I cannot remember her name, but there was a very young uh, female member of the city council in who was a huge baseball fan, and she was uh, 
instrumental in making sure that Los Angeles made, and they, they certainly did in the end, made a really good offer to move the team out, uh, to move the, the Dodgers there. So they, they deserve a lot of credit, too. They, they did, and they sort of bent over backwards to welcome the Dodgers in many, many ways when it happened. But this story, again, we could have a full deep dive oh, yeah. on it, full of all kinds of intrigue. But in the end, you know what O'Malley did? He set the tone. He set the tone for baseball oligarchs in the future to, you know, claim fiscal calamity, to threaten to abandon the city if taxpayer dollars aren't thrown his way. However, to be fair to him again, he actually privately financed yep. Dodger Stadium where Stoneham, and that's the beautiful Dodger Stadium, Stoneham actually got city funds yep. for Candlestick. So everything's not black and white, but it is black and white that Dodger Stadium is beautiful and that Candlestick, <laughs> not so it, much. It had its charm, may not have had its charm. May not have had its charm. I'll tell you, though, uh, Dodger Stadium, as beautiful as it is, they displaced thousands of Chicano families who were yep. living in Chavez Ravines with little or no recompense. And so it was a very L.A. thing to do, certainly from a San Francisco point of view, to have this sunny, rich, glamorous stadium whilst ignoring the plight of the minority communi communities right outside their door. And perhaps you could say that for other cities and perhaps the entire country or perhaps the entire world, John Pelkey. Absolutely. Poor always being screwed over by the rich. Always have been, always will be. That's a quote from Platoon. And I cleaned it up just slightly. So San Francisco now, the town of San Francisco by the late 50s, they had started to look at Los Angeles because, you know, San Francisco was the town out in California. And L.A. was just a, you know, kind of a cow town, desert town. By 1920, though, they were the biggest town in California. And Hollywood helped. Oil reserved help, reserves helped. And by the 1950s, uh, San Franciscans were looking at Los Angeles as a, having superficial glory. And they had a lot of real wealth that Los Angelinos did, the entire city. And they looked at this entire city, this entire community with disdain. Now, I, I grew up into this. I yeah, was born no, in, in, in 60. You're no cow guy. I was. And so, in, in their opinion, uh, Los Angelinos were, were right-wing rubes lounging in their bungalows while the you know, provincial San Franciscans are, you know, doing their daily routine from their Victorian houses. You know, I mean, it was one of those. It was unbelievable. San Franciscans they, were provincial, culturally superior. They thought the L.A. people dressed like fake royalty and smelled like new money. <laughs> exactly. So exactly. They were Thomas Jefferson and uh, L.A. was Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton was L.A. Right? So it was a very New York attitude, their provinciality, their cultural superiority. But guess what? The jealousy and resentment that they had toward L.A., that was very much a Brooklyn characteristic. Mm -hmm. So really, they embraced the ethic of the Brooklyn Dodgers in terms of how they felt about the New York Giants, even though they had a New York sensibility with their culture and their provinciality. Yeah. It was a, a pretty interesting role reversal. And so that's why the rivalry really was heated from the San Francisco point of view from the top. They wanted to beat the Dodgers, but they wanted to beat L.A. And the Dodger fans, in the meantime, they were cheery, sunny, happy. They didn't care about a rivalry. They'll embrace their team. They're not hating anyone. Woohoo! <laughs> That's what it was when, when, when they got out there in 1958. So now the Giants get to San Francisco. They're the first Major League Baseball team to really uh, scout Latin players in the Dominican Republic, other places around the country as well. 
which is why they landed the Alou brothers, Juan Marichal, and Orlando Cepeda. And along with Willie McCovey, who they, they got those all those players in 58, they got McCovey in 59. You know, Giants fans were loaded. They, they were loaded with a group of, of great, young, homegrown talent, yep. which is why they did not embrace Willie Mays no. when he first I came to I want to point to one panel. thing, Mark, to your point. Yeah. If we could go back to the, uh, to the McCovey picture, because that is at uh, Dodger Stadium, if you notice. Um, and to your point about the fans, that's the fourth inning at Dodger Stadium. <laughs> so there's like <laughs> six people there, and five of them look like they work at the stadium. Now, granted, so, within one inning, the, the stadium will be filled. Right, and then two innings three. later, it'll be empty yes. again. Exactly. They saw baseball as like a 90-minute exercise. They did. That was it. There's so much else to do. Minutes. That's it. Whatever. What do, you mean the games, what do you mean the game's too long? Uh, we were there for an hour and a half. That's a long time. That's a lot of investment. <laughs> so with uh, Cepeda, with McCovey, with Marichal, with the Alou brothers, uh, there was not room in San Francisco's heart for Willie Mays. And it's just amazing to me to think of because he's Willie Mays for crying out loud. And just think about this. He's the greatest ball player of the generation. Mm-hmm. He is truly bigger than the game, even then. And this so-called progressive city not only turns their back on him, but forces him to face racial discrimination when he's trying to get housing for himself. For and wasn't about. some of the disdain for and disdain for Mays maybe going a little bit too far, but you know they, they thought of him as a New York giant, and whereas yes. Tate and McCovey and the, those were guys, those were yes. you know that's the provincial thinking. These are our guys, totally. you know. Yes. We didn't buy them from someone else, which is what the, kind of the the thought was on the giants that came to, out to the coast. And it was a brand new team. There was really only about three guys who were who came from New York. One of them being Willie Mays, and yeah, he was he was not a hometown a hometown guy. Mm-hmm. So that provinciality, which is rife in San Francisco, you know, turned against Willie Mays for crying out loud. And so that combined with a nightmare he faced in Candlestick Park made his enthusiasm, his boyish enthusiasm, well, it dulled it just a bit. Yeah. And meanwhile, the Dodgers. You know, they're retooling on their own as well because, you know, Robinson is retired. He uh, was traded to the Giants, would rather retire, and he did. Hated the Giants that much. Uh, Hodges, Snyder, they were fading. And poor Roy Campanella, because of a tragic auto accident, was was paralyzed mm-hmm. for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in comes Maury Wills and uh, Willie Davis. Those are those two guys there, along with Tommy Davis, his brother, Frank Howard, and Ron Fairley. Those are the three other guys coming in. A big nucleus there. Also, from the last years in Brooklyn, come Jim Gilliam, Johnny Roseborough, and Don Drysdale. That's the next uh, three guys to come. Those are those guys. And, of course, the great Sandy Koufax. So the Dodgers are ready and set for a major run, which is exactly what they had. In 59, the Giants and the Dodgers were tied for first when the Dodgers go to Candlestick for a late September three-game series. The Dodgers sweep. Go on to win the series. In 62, the Dodgers were five and a half games in front in August. They had become a very small ball team. Maury Wills was on his way to stealing 104 bases. Gilliam was still fast. The Davis brothers were fast. During the course of this season, Alvin Dark, when visiting Dodger Stadium, noticed that do we remember remember Alvin Dark? Yes, we remember him from our A's deep dive, longtime player, longtime manager as well, and uh, well-known uh, racist. Well-known racist, Alvin Dark, yes. Mm-hmm. He uh, he wanted all the Latino players to speak Spanish, even when they were speaking to each other. 
So the Alou brothers English? or speak, speak English. Yeah. Oh, you said Spanish. It was like, yes. wow, I don't want to know what you're saying. Yes, uh, exactly. No, no. Wow. He, he wanted to know, even if they were talking to each other, they wanted to do that. Uh, Jim Davenport um, in 61 had a good year, 14 home runs, you know, 62 RBIs, 280 solid from the South. He, uh, Dark gave him the MVP for the Giants that year over Orlando Cepeda, who led the league in home runs, was up in RBIs at 320-something. Cepeda was just pissed. Cepeda did not like Alvin Dark. So Alvin Dark, all right, he's the manager at this point in time. Like you say, he was a player for the Giants. He notices that the turf is very hard at Dodger Stadium. He sees these rollers, these heavy rollers, rolling down the base paths, packing in the dirt, making it, like asphalt, like hard as a rock. And it gave the Dodger runners more traction. And, you know, he wasn't going to let that stand. He hated the Dodgers. He goes way back. He was there in 51 for the Giants. He was there in 54. Couldn't stand him. Was going to get his pound of flesh. So sure enough, when the Dodgers go back to Candlestick, he instructs his groundskeeper to, like, you know, break up the dirt around first base and third base. Break it up and then fill it with peat moss and sand. And the groundskeeper got three wheelbarrows full of sand and did this. And, of course, when the Dodgers got there, they complained. The umpire said, listen, you have to get rid of that. So the groundskeeper comes out, puts the stuff back in his wheelbarrows, and uh, Dark says to him, okay, now just wet down first and third. Wet it so much that they that they can see it. So then, of course, the Dodgers complain about that. And, of course, the umpire says, you, you need to fix that, fill that up. So the groundskeeper came back with those three wheelbarrows yeah. and filled it all in. And so first and third became a swamp. And the Maury Wills was pissed. The Giants swept that weekend. The Dodgers only stole one base. And uh, he got he exacted his revenge. I like it. I like it a lot. It's, it's like it's, when your parents told you to turn down the stereo and you went, yeah, and you walked over to the stereo and you pretended to turn it down and they were just convinced that you had. Yeah, I, I know. I, I like it. Well, it's one thing to like about Alvin Dark. There's one. There, there it is. One thing. So the Giants catch the Dodgers. The two teams finish in a tie again. And once again, there's going to be a three-game playoff. Once again, it came down to game three. Once again, the Giants came from behind in the ninth inning. And once again, the game was played on October 3rd. Now, not only did the... Dodgers lose in 1951 on October 3rd, but they also lost the tiebreaker to the Cardinals in 1946 on October 3rd as well. And it wouldn't be the last time October 3rd would play a role in this rivalry. So just like 1951, the Dodgers lose, the Giants win. They go on to lose in seven games to the Yankees on the last uh, play of the game. Willie McCovey's scorching line drive that Bobby Richardson grabs with runners on second and third down one nothing game seven couldn't be more dramatic than that uh but after that 62 heartbreaking loss the dodgers did what they did in 51 they go on a run they won three out of the next four pennants they won the world series in 63 they win the world series in 65 and that second one was really hard fought in a lot of different ways now by 65, Herman Franks, they'd fired Alvin Dark. By 65, Herman Franks, remember him? He was the guy with the telescope. Sign-stealing telescope guy. Yes. He's now managing the Giants. Of course he is. And uh, Sandy Koufax, at this point, is in his fifth, uh, was in his fifth year of his extraordinary run. It started in 61 when he won 18 games. That year, he struck out 269 batters. He broke Christy Matheson's 58-year-old record that year, oh, by the way. He would pitch his fourth no-hitter in 65, which was a perfect game. In that perfect game, by the way, he struck out 14 batters. 
That record was not to be touched until a giant did it in 2012 as Matt Cain when he pitched his perfect game. Koufax also struck out the last batter in that, so it was really dramatic. That, it, that perfect it, game struck out un, Harvey King. Yeah. Unbelievable. Un, un, uh, Koufax just had an otherworldly run. There's no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah, he had that. You know, his career was because he was hurt his arm early on, and he was wild, and then he retired early. But that five-year period uh, or so is maybe the five best years that any pitcher's ever had. More, yeah, I think you could easily make that argument. Yeah. Uh, he won a second Cy Young Award that year. He was going to win a third the following year. Now, Willie Mays in 65 was having an MVP year. He would win it, and it would be uh, the last time he won it was 11 years prior, which was remarkable in and of itself. Juan Marichal was in the middle of another stellar year. He would go on to win 22 games with a 2.13 ERA and did not win the Cy Young because <laughs> Sandy Koufax was in the same league. <laughs> So the Giants and the Dodgers are battling all year for this, for this pennant. And on, on August 22nd, this is only six days after the Watts riots in L.A., mind you, the Dodgers had a slim game-and-a-half lead. It was going to be another classic pitching matchup setting up Koufax and Marichal. Uh, Marichal known as the Dominican Dandy. And he was 21-4 and four against the Dodgers in, in San Francisco. Just hmm. remarkable. He owned, owned him. him. Yeah, yeah, he did. He owned him. And uh, on this day, like so many others, this may be why he was 21 and four. He would just throw out their heads. He wanted to establish the inside part of the plate. He wanted to establish dominance. Or as sure. Nuclelouche said in my favorite film, uh, sports film, Bull Durham, I want to announce my presence with authority. There it is. That's all. That's all it's the Dominican Dandy wanted to do. I'm not trying to hurt you. No. And announcing presence. He didn't hurt Maury Wills, who he did that to lead off the game, but of course the Dodgers wanted to get back, and the whole retaliation game began. Only problem was Sandy Koufax didn't play that game. He was not about that. He was worried that his velocity would hurt players, maybe even kill them. He would uh, sort of throw a bone to it at times, because it's such a part of the culture of Major League Baseball. In this case, he threw uh, over Willie Mays' head by about 12 feet, you know. So... Great quote about Koufax. He'd strike you out, but he wouldn't embarrass you. That's the truth. That's the kind of guy he was. But Johnny Roseboro really wanted retaliation. And he was having a tough summer. He lived very close to Watts in South Central. And he was, you know, watching, dreading this potential race war that was happening in his backyard. So that's on his mind. It's only six days away. Marichal comes to bat. He goes to Koufax one more time and pleads, come on, Sandy, just hit this guy for me. Koufax refuses. <laughs> so uh, Koufax throws one right down the middle. Marichal uh, takes it for a strike. And when Roseboro returns the throw, it grazes Marichal's ear. According, according to Marichal. According to Marichal. <laughs> according to Marichal. <laughs> so Marichal turns to Roseboro and says, what are you doing that for? And it just explodes. Uh, Roseboro stands up, throws off his mask, and goes after Marichal. But Marichal hits him in the head with a bat. Mm-hmm. The most egregious thing any player has done to any other player in the history of Major League Baseball. He was going for it again when he got tackled by by the umpire. He was not, not a happy man. Yes, Shag Crawford. Remember, remember that name from back in the day? Shag Crawford tackled him. Koufax rushed in. The benches cleared. 14-minute brawl ensued. The cops literally had to break it up with the help of Willie Mays. He got in there early. He gave aid to Johnny Roseboro because, you know, he needed 14 stitches, so he's bleeding profusely. He held back another Dodger peacefully from attacking Marichal, and he helped show the world again how he could rise above everything. 
This is Willie Mays. You could rise above the fray. And so after this happened, when the Giants went on the road, he got ovations, un, uh, you know, spontaneous, unprompted ovations in Pittsburgh, in Philly, in New York, in Chicago, and in Los Angeles. Mm. How about that? So they suspended Marichal for eight games, which seems had to miss a start. Pretty minor. Uh, it would have an effect later in the year because they didn't allow him to go to Los Angeles. They wouldn't even allow him to travel for the last series. Was that was that a league thing? They wouldn't let him travel to LA yeah. or was that team? Okay. Yeah, that was the league telling him he couldn't go there uh, for that two-game series late in the season. But the Giants won 14 in a row after this. They had a four-and-a-half game lead with 16 to play. And much like many other years in San Francisco in the 60s, the Giants with five Hall of Famers, they would blow this lead because the Dodgers, with those 16 games left, won 15 of them. They win the pennant. They go on to win the World Series, and they get the last laugh, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah, that happened frequently. <laughs> it did. It <laughs> Sad, did. Sadly. So Koufax, Not in Brooklyn, but in L.A., certainly. Yeah, no doubt, especially in this era. Yeah. Koufax, and in the 70s as well, Koufax uh, really did play in pain. You referred to it earlier, John. He had arthritis. It was diagnosed sometime in the early 60s, and he did something, Koufax did, uh, to his arm in 65, early in 65, where he had to take some cortisone, he had to miss some games, but he literally played in pain those last two years. Yeah, but he he uh, he retires after the '66 World Series, where they got swept by the Orioles. Uh, Herman Franks lead the Giants to five consecutive second place finishes with five Hall of Famers. They get to the World Series once and don't win. Pretty disappointing. Uh, and the decade finished with Don Drysdale uh, finishing the last four years of the decade with a losing record. But he did make his mark on history, and you look at Don Drysdale there in 1968. So this is a pretty fun story. In May of 68, he pitches a shutout to the Cubs. He shuts out the Astros. He shuts out the Cardinals. He shuts out the Astros again. So now it's the Giants' turn. He's at 36. 36 consecutive scoreless innings. The record, of course, held by a giant, Carl Hubble, the great screwballer, uh, at 46 and a third. So now he's all the way through the eighth inning. So he's at 44 innings now, or or 43 plus. And uh, the dot, the Giants load the bases with nobody outs. And Dick Dietz comes up. And I I remember Dick Dietz back in the day, uh, catcher for the Giants. And he gets hit, gets hit in the elbow. Starts to first in the umpire, Harry Wendelstedt, says, come back here. You didn't try to get out of the way. The batter is obligated to try and get out of the way. Dietz was like, what? What are you talking about? Of course, you know, here comes Frank's. Arguing for a half an hour with Harry Wendelstadt. <laughs> but Wendelstadt wins. Dietz later says it was a spitball. He could have flinched. It would have hit him because it was a spitball. Who knows where it was going to go. And Dietz flies out to short right field. They can't score the run. The next guy hits it up the middle. The shortstop gets it and forces the runner out at home. And the next guy flies out. He gets out of the inning. Finishes the game. Shuts out the Pirates the next game to break Hubble's record. And now he was going for, for the next game against the Phillies. He needed a couple of innings to break the all-time, the Major League Baseball record, which was held by Walter Johnson, and he went and did that. So, remarkable year, late in Don Drysdale's career, uh, and the, the Giants, of course, of course, factored into it. So, yeah. in 1971, Giants had an eight-game lead going into September. They barely held on against the Dodgers to win the division on the last day of the season. But here we go, folks. Here comes uh, here comes the depressing side of the, the story. From 72 to 86, okay, that's a 15-year period, they never finished higher than third, finishing fourth or fifth in a six-team division, by the way. Fourth is not, you know, 
first division like it used to be considered first division like it used to be when it was just eight teams or ten teams in the NL. Right. But this is a six-team division. They finished fourth or fifth ten times, ten out of those 15 years, and no one came. They had yeah. well under a million fans for most of the 70s as well. Look at that. That's just sad. It was brutal. Meanwhile, of course, the Dodgers were building another great team for another great run. Hammer and nail time again. They always had at least one big star. The Dodgers did, always. They were in the best shape in the league financially. They broke the 3 million attendance mark in 1978. And the whole city was on fire as well during that period of time between 72 and 86. Their entertainment culture was everywhere. They hosted the Olympics in 84. Ronald Reagan, who called L.A. his home, he lived in Bel Air, was elected president for crying out loud. You know, the Lakers are doing well. The Rams are doing well. Yep. Rams get to a Super Bowl. Lakers bring in magic. That's the start of Showtime there. So, yeah, you're right. That was, you know, <laughs> boy, talk about a tale of two cities. Seriously. And again, this is, you know, San Francisco's playing the role of Brooklyn yet again. San Francisco was having a hard time of it, not just with the Giants. 49ers were pathetic. But, uh, you know, the SLA, there's Patty Hearst. That happens in 74. Jonestown happens in 78 followed by George Moscone and Harvey Milk getting assassinated just eight days later. Things were rough in San Francisco. Yeah, the only, I guess the only thing, I'm trying to think about in San Francisco, I guess the Warriors in 77 really was the only thing that... Yeah, 75. Or 75, excuse me. Warriors in 75 was really the only thing. Yeah, uh, and The Raiders. And, and the Raiders, but, but as, as we have, right, as we have talked about on this show, yes. there's a provinciality. If, if people in San Francisco hate L.A., they hate Oakland more. Yes, Somehow, somehow, which just just makes no it's sense. Inexplicable. Whatsoever. It really is. I, I somehow that didn't take with me and I'm happy. Yeah. About that. Yeah, I get it. So uh, people thought the rivalry was over. You know, this hammer and nail thing extended to the city. They thought it was over. But just like it was in the, you know, in the in their mid 20s, all the way through the 30s in Brooklyn, the, it was up to the fans of the weaker team to keep the rivalry going. And just like they did in Ebbets Field 50 years before. They would fight. They would throw bottles. They would throw verbal abuse, beer dumping. All that became prevalent in Candlestick Park. The more pointless the games, the more violent they became. Seriously. And the frustration of being a Giants fan coupled with the just sadness of watching their beloved city go through all this turmoil and trauma, it gave more meaning to beating the Dodgers, to your point. You know, again, beat L.A. was not just about the Dodgers. It was about the city beat the city. Right. And that's why. And you know what? That's why it appears it, it's it's a mirror uh, in many ways of Red Sox. Yankees. Yes. Yes. Very much so. The cities, uh, the fact that for the vast majority of the time, the Red Sox were the nail, though that did change, obviously. But uh, that a lot of the same. And the fans are really what kept that alive. The fans of the Red Sox, particularly right. are the ones that kept that alive when it was meaningless baseball for so, so you Whatever. have to keep it alive by just categorizing the other city. Well, in this case, San Franciscans would categorize L.A. people as smug, superficial, conservative yeah. frauds. <laughs> so there you have it. They weren't baseball fans. They, well, we talked about it. They show up in the fourth inning. They leave in the seventh. Right. That was the San Francisco Giants attitude. Now, the Dodgers would drive these fans even more mad and more crazy. Because of the makeup of the team, they had an infield with Ron Say, Bill Russell, Davey Lopes, and Steve Garvey that stayed together almost a decade. Started 
every game for almost an entire decade. And they gave the Giants and, frankly, the rest of the National League fits. Those Dodgers won four National League pennants, 74, 77, 78, and 81, and one World Series. And despite all that, despite all the frustration, all of the angst, all of the poo-pooing of guys like Steve Garvey and commenting on the obvious hypocrisy of these people. <laughs> no one gave no one gave Giants fans more fits than Tommy Lasorda. Tommy Lasorda, he'd replaced the Hall of Fame Walter Alston in 1977. And Lasorda, this is the thing about Lasorda. He taught his team only two lessons. He said, you got to bleed Dodger Blue. You got to have loyalty. You got to have total loyalty to the team. And you have to hate the Giants. Literally, when, when a player would come into the locker room, they'd see a sign that said, love the Dodgers, but hate the Giants. And this is in 77, when the Giants were the nail. It's, it's remarkable. And he's also sort of this combination of Wilbert Robinson from back in the day, the first uh, Dodger manager of the Robins that really started the rivalry, and a little bit Leo DeRocher as well. And he was a complete showman, Tommy Lasorda. But his act, if you will, kind of kept things going because he would go to San Francisco. People come out just to boo him. Yeah. Just just to assault him verbally. And it and it kept the fans coming, kind of kept him viable in some dark, dark times for the San Francisco Giants. So the act in a way worked both ways. Now seventy eight comes along and the Giants are viable finally again. They're over five hundred. They're actually leading the division well into the summer. And However, for whatever reason, at this point in time, the fans, because of the success, got more brazen. You know, Reggie Smith said something like, these fans didn't even show up, and now they're here. They're not good fans. They're vicious. They would, they would, uh, there was one game where they applauded a fan who, who burned a Dodger flag during pregame warmups. That same game, they threw bottles, they threw beer, they threw rocks and tomatoes. They almost had to forfeit the game. And then later on in August, back in Candlestick, it got even worse. Giants still had a two-and-a-half game lead at this point in time. That was apples, bananas, beer, ice, bottles, caps, coins, cups, golf balls, and firecrackers. I mean, this is 1978. Yeah. It's, it's nuts, the violence that was happening. And, yes, Reggie Smith called him vicious. Say that, yeah, the fans in Philly are loud. They're obnoxious. But these fans are vicious. Even Vince Scully got into the act. He'd been with the team at this point almost a quarter of a century. There's good old Vin. And he said this, uh, you, you know what they ought to do? Uh, I don't do. Do you know the quote, John? I believe uh, Vince Scully said of this. You know what I would do? I would have all the Giants fans come into the stadium, lock the stadium doors and burn it to the ground, killing each and every one of those animals. There's a double down the left field line. That's right, right? That's what he said. Burn a place to the ground. I could get myself a flamethrower and just take them apart. I'd turn them into cinders. Those scum-sucking pieces of human garbage. The giant fans. I don't believe he said that. But he really? said something relatively okay. close. All right, fair enough. He said the crowds on, uh, they, what, this is what they should do with Friday night crowds at Candlestick. They should bring them into the stadium. They should lock. They should lock it up. And then they should play the game somewhere else. He didn't mention <laughs> he didn't mention burning the stadium and the people in it to the ground. I'd pour gasoline all over them and burn them to the ground. 
They're bad Americans and bad people. Ron Say now hitting 266. <laughs> That's a pretty good average. That's a pretty good guess for an average. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, would be Ron Say sitting around two, 260, 270, right? A good year. Yeah. So he then added, actually, uh, Scully then added at that point, the, the, uh, the fans at Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds would never think of throwing things at players. Now, we know that's not true. He was just, he was, you know, kind of waxing nostalgic. Creating the mythology. Creating the myth. There it is. They threw lots of things from Ebbets Field and from the Polo Grounds. They did lots I, of bad things. It was. I'm gonna. I'm gonna tell you. I told you the story when before the show. But there's that uh, when Walter O'Malley was moving the team out of Brooklyn, and there were other reasons too. In Brooklyn, uh, the neighborhood had, had had really gotten run down in Brooklyn, and it was just it not a great place. But at one point, O'Malley saw a fan urinate into a a bottle and throw the bottle onto the field. Yeah. Now I don't know whether it was just you know throwing it at someone. I didn't get get to the bottom of that. So it may have just been, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, bathrooms, they, they, they smell. So I'm going to relieve myself here. And then, you know, I don't want to hang on to the bottle. Somebody's going to tell them to Somebody will pick it up, right? There are people yep. who pick those sort of things up. I believe that was Howard Hughes who did that. As a matter wow. of fact, it started. It hey, started look, from- billionaire Howard Hughes is in. What is he? Oh, my God. Hughes is urinating in a bottle and throwing it onto the field. Gil Hodges at bat. Boy, I think everyone remembers when he struggled. Now Hughes is defecating on the top of the dugout. Mm. Sad to see the producer and director of the first Hollywood Academy Award winning film now relieving himself, defecating on the field here at Abbott's Field. Gil steps out, actually uh, <laughs> glancing towards... And he seems disgusting. All right. This is great. We could go on all day with this. I could just do that all day long. All day long. Hilarious. But yeah, no, but you make it, you know, that's one of the, can can we just say that because we love baseball announcers. It's the most fun sport to to listen to on the radio. So, but they do create a mythology, certainly. Absolutely. uh, I don't think Vin was necessarily lying. But no. uh, objects in the rearview mirror appear much nicer than they really ever were. <laughs> That's true. That's exactly the truth. And it, it happens to all of us. We wax nostalgic about to, the uh, the days gone by. Hey, so, to, quote, to quote the worst Billy Joel uh, song off the worst Billy Joel album, the good old days weren't always good. And tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. There it is. There it is. From Innocent Man. Crap. Album, album. you hate. Garbage. Just think it's crap. It's crap. By the way, Reggie Smith, who called the fans vicious, he, he really was kind of a clutch player. Uh, for the Dodgers and for any team he went with, he had he had one of the highest winning percentages as a player yeah. uh, in terms of what his team did with him. He was really one of those guys. Don Sutton at one point said that Reggie Smith is the real star of this team, not Steve Garvey. And that led to a clubhouse fight between Steve Garvey and, and Don Sutton because uh, they did not get along those days. They were big egos with those Dodgers. Yeah. Yeah. Reggie Smith, a forgotten guy, though. You bring up an yeah. outstanding point. His name comes up a lot. And, 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 I, and I think in no small part, and I mean this 100%, because his name is Reggie Smith. And it is a very sort of common name. Yeah. I think that that, in some way, makes it more difficult to remember. Lost to history. I think he's a yeah, seven-time really he all-star. A, he was a great baseball player. He was a good. He was a great baseball yeah. player. Yeah, and he was clutch, and he he was a big reason that late 70s Dodgers team was so successful. So, now, how do the L.A. fans react when the Giants come back to town after hearing about these stories of throwing rocks and bottles and golf balls and firecrackers? They, when Alvin Dark, you know, when Alvin Dark made swamps out of first and third base, they 
innocently gave duck calls to him when he came, sort of fun duck calls. They applauded Willie Mays after the Roseboro incident. And what did they do after this? Just responded like you see in the picture. Enthusiasm, good cheer, civility. I mean, really, they were just they were just living large. Yep. And they didn't they didn't buy into the rivalry really as much because it didn't feel like one to them. They were just having a great time. So it was, though, however, in full gear, at least from the San Francisco point of view. And the differences in the team, the differences in the fans, the differences in the city, I mean, they couldn't be more stark at this point in time. Dodgers ended up uh, winning the division, of course, that year. They ended up going to the World Series against the Yankees. And the Giants fall back to earth, only to come alive again four years later in 1982, where they are, they have another winning record finally. And the Dodgers are coming off winning their world championship in 1981, but they were 10 games back by late July. Now, I remember listening to this game. They were down to the Braves. The Braves were running away with it. Braves led by Joe Torre uh, in 1982, running away with it. The Braves had about a five-run a five run lead. Dodgers are down 10 games in the standings. And the Dodgers come back. I remember listening to that game. They come back. They win that game. They go on a major run. In the next 20 games, they go 16-4. and four. And because the Braves, they're not used to being in first, they felt the pressure. They started collapsing. Literally, in 20 games, John, the Dodgers went from 10 back to 4 up in 20 games. That's remarkable. Meanwhile, the Giants. That would be hard like, to do if you were only playing each other the whole time. Yeah, seriously. You know what I mean? That's, it, it just, that, that, that's remarkable how that is even possible. Boy, the Braves. Yeah. Man, it's a long, long history of clam. Yeah, but they got really? up off the schneid that year yeah. in the Giants. Yeah. In the meantime, led by Frank Robinson. Oh, by the way, uh, they're playing good ball. They were 13 out in early August, but climbed back in it. As I said, the Braves, Braves did bounce back. And by September 26th, after the Giants swept the Dodgers, all three teams were within one game of each other. So that's pretty fun. There's like six games to play, and they're all within one game of each other. And it all comes down to, of course, the final series of the season at Candlestick Park, Giants-Dodgers. <laughs> and uh, the Dodgers did win the first two games, eliminating the Giants. And the Braves, again, managed by Joe Torre, had a one-game lead on the Dodgers, but they lost their final game. So the Dodgers just needed a win on the last game of the season to tie the Braves and have a chance for the postseason. The date? October 3rd. So Fernando Valenzuela, we haven't talked about him yet. He started the game. He was coming off the Rookie of the Year campaign. Cy Young Award. He won a Cy Young and a Rookie of the Year in 1981. He was the he, face of baseball in 1981. He, he really he dazzled everyone. He's in my senior high school yearbook as one of the stories of the year because I graduated in 82, so 81, 82. I mean, he yeah. was, I, you know, I, he was the face of baseball that year. He really was. And a cultural icon. Totally. As a matter of fact, the relationship between uh, Mexican-American people of Los Angeles you know, that was so tarnished because of the way they were treated in Chavez Ravine healed, healed yep. forever because of Fernando mania. That's what they called it. It was Fernando remarkable. Mania. It was remarkable. And uh, oh, by the way, Fernando, the third great screwballer in the history <laughs> of the Giants and the Dodgers That's behind Matheson, awesome. Hubble and now Fernando. Come on. It's good. Good company to be in, Fernando. No doubt about it. He followed up that amazing year that you talked about. He had 19 wins in 82. He follows up with 19 wins, 2.87 ERA, four shutouts. And uh, so he's starting this very, very important game. He's in the seventh inning. It's 2-2. Two to two, 
and the Dodgers are threatening in the top of the seventh. They get the bases loaded. There's two outs. Fernando's on deck, but he's kind of stretching. He's kind of getting ready. He's a pretty good hitter. He was a pretty good uh, hitting pitcher. So he's stretching, and Ron Paranowski, the pitching coach, took that to mean that he was hurting, that his pitching arm was hurting. So he told Lasorda to pull him. So that's what ended up happening. They pulled Fernando. So you realize that pulling him for a pinch hitter, that the drama of that decision and its repercussions, John, would never have happened if they were in the American League. Think of that. Yeah. That drama would be done. Be all be gone. All you know? It's not you interesting. Just, just want your home runs, right? You just don't want to see pitchers hit, right? That's it. Hit the ball over the fence. Yee. So bottom of the seventh now. They got out of the inning, bottom of the seventh. Tom Needenfuhrer was pitching, who, who the Dodgers are not fond of. And uh, he came in. He got into trouble. <laughs> Terry Forster came in, tried to clean it up. The fat two, tub of goo himself. David Letter referred to him as the fat tub of goo. Yep, Terry Forster. Good pitcher. Pitcher with the Braves, I believe, when he was the fat tub of goo. <laughs> so he, uh, he gets two strikes on Morgan, Joe Morgan. And at that point in time, Morgan hits a home run, drills it. There's Joe Morgan. There's him celebrating when he comes home. With future Arizona Diamondbacks World Series winning manager Bob Brenly. Bob Brenly, who was on base for the three-run homer that Joe Morgan hit to put the Giants up 5-2. to two. The Dodgers tried to come back, but they couldn't. Once again, their hearts were broken. Once again, Giants fans were delighted yep. that they ruined the Dodgers' plans. But Lowell Cohn, who's a San Francisco Chronicle uh, reporter, said, listen, you shouldn't be happy. This, the, the, this was a double murder that happened this weekend. <laughs> Both teams were eliminated. As a matter of fact, John, it's the only time in the history of the Giants and the Dodgers that they eliminated each other in the final series of the season. But that's perfect. I know. I mean, that's perfect. It is. It is. So the Dodgers now go on to win a division in 83 and 85. Neen Fuhrer was the famous GOAT in 85, giving up the home run to Jack Clark. Giants would win the division in 87. They'd go to the World Series in 89, the Earthquake World Series. On the strength of uh, MVP Kevin Mitchell and Will Clark. And the Dodgers uh, won it all in 1988. The Giants then spoiled the party again in 1991. 1991, remember, that's the first year the Braves go on their run. That's their yep. worst to first year where they played the Minnesota Twins, who were also worst to first in 1991 and going into that last weekend of the season, the Dodgers had a one game lead and the giants swept them and eliminated the Dodgers thereby allowing the Braves to get into the playoffs. They would beat the Pittsburgh pirates and they go to the world series, but that's another heartbreaker. Another spoiler. The, the giants were nowhere in 1991. Well, also they beat the Barry bonds led Pittsburgh pirates. So those two uh, national league championship series in 91, 92, two of the great, championship series of all time amazing stuff it see the thing is is that you can make your season even if you're 19 games out of first place yeah you can make your season by making sure you break the hearts of your bitter rival it's yeah amazing. it's please i grew up in washington dc and a washington football team dallas cowboy rivalry i mean there were years when you know the the, the reds they almost said it. The uh, Washington football team was uh, uh, they were just they were not very good. But if you could beat Dallas, that was that was worth everything. So in 1992, the Giants almost moved for the second time in 76. They were they were going to move to Toronto and George Moscone, the ill fated George Moscone, stepped in, found a buyer for him, Bob Lurie. And in 1992, the same thing happened. They were going to move to Tampa and it was all set. 
And the ownership group was led by a guy named Vincent Piazza, father of Mike, who was the best friend of Tommy Lasorda. Now, remember, this is coming off of the 92 season. Lasorda's worst in L.A. I think they won. They didn't even win 70 games that year. So the plan was for Lasorda to step in and manage. So can you imagine it'd be the Tampa Bay Giants, but it would still be the Giants. So you'd have a Dodger manager once again going to the Giants. That's great. Which is hilarious. And he was eventually going to step into the GM role and give the managing duties over to his protege, Bobby Valentine. So Bobby Valentine with a with an appearance in the deep dives. Hey, son-in-law of Ralph Branca, I believe, who Bobby Thompson hit the home run off of in 51. So Bobby could have popped up a little bit earlier. Yeah, well, exactly. No, Bobby, Bobby would have popped up a little earlier if I would have included a, an anecdote with him. But there's just... Ah, uh, there's so much. But we, only just... have, we only have so much time. We're already at a hun- uh, an hour 16 in. So the fact that they were going to switch teams where he was going to go to the Giants, you know, it's just on par. It's like this has happened before. This is not even new news. This is not even shocking. It's, just it's funny because Dodgers. you you whine about retreads all the time. I mean, there are coaches that you will just you will attack Walt Michaels, I believe. I oh mean, no, I love Walt. Oh, you, who is it? you always go after? Uh, there's a football coach. In any case, Lehman Bennett. Lehman Bennett. Yeah, you despise Lehman Bennett. Dan Henning. I tell you what, if I had Lehman Bennett in the stadium right now, I'd beat him to death with a baseball bat, like I. Well, anyway, um, uh, but that, that with the Dodgers and the Giants, it's kind of like this sort of open, yeah. revolving door. Seriously, thing. Okay. seriously, it's crazy. So at the last second, Peter McGowan stepped in, uh, executive from Safeway, uh, or maybe owned a lot of Safeway, and he stepped in, he bought the team, saved them. Not only did he buy the team and save them, he hired Dusty Baker, and he brought in Barry Bonds as a free agent, and that turned around the team. And that very first year, the Giants have an amazing year. But yet again, more spoiling is about to occur, just like in 1916 and 1934 and 1982 and in 1991. They went into the final series against the Dodgers, having won 100 games in Barry Bonds' first year. That's his first year with the Giants in 1993. He hit 46 home runs. He drove in 123. He got the MVP. But they were still somehow one game back of the Braves. So they have a four-game series against the Dodgers. They win the first game, and the Braves lose the first game. So now they're tied. They both win the next two games. So now with the last game of the season looming, the Braves and the Giants both have 103 wins, and the final game of the season was played on October 3rd. October 3rd. Wow. The Braves won. So the Giants had to. The Braves had already won, so the Giants had to. Tommy Lasorda, talk about this. This says it all. Tommy Lasorda who was part of the organization for those other October 3rds, by the way. He was a player in Brooklyn's top AAA team in 51. He was a scout for the Dodgers in 62. He was a manager in 1982 with Joe Morgan. So even though those the, his team had lost the first three games to the Giants badly, he led his team in a pregame pep talk, <laughs> referring back to 1991 where Will Clark bragged, that even though he was injured, he would play against the Dodgers just to see them lose, just for the pleasure of beating them. That's awesome. Uh, he doesn't want to beat us any more than we want to beat them, Lasorda bellowed. This is the quote. Now go out there and make my year. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It was making Tommy Lasorda's year, and sure enough, they beat the Giants 12-1. to mm. And uh, made millions of Dodger, Dodger fans 
their year as well. They were very happy. And you've never you've never let it go. No, 103 wins and you can't make the playoffs. And of course, the next year is realignment. So they would have right. easily made yeah. the wild card. It was a good argument to push realignment. I mean, I know that yes. has been decided yes. on, but it, but it really, really was kind of the thing that said, you want a 100-plus te- win team, you want them in the playoffs. Yeah, that was that, baseball. that was the nail in the coffin for, for anyone t- trying to be a traditionalist or a purist on that. Yeah, I'm sure Bob Costa still holding yep. on to it. Bob Costa will explain why it screwed everybody over and how that was the beginning of the end. And if he could add, if he had the people involved, he'd lock them in a room and open up a flamethrower. Ha, <laughs> ha. Just saying. Yeah, he would. So the Dusty Baker era was big for the Giants. Uh, they were it was successful. They won a division title in 97 after another great pennant race between the two clubs. That year in 97, by the way, in a pivotal series late in the year, Barry Bonds had a clutch home run and proceeded to do a pirouette. It's a very famous moment. Uh, another one in uh, 2000. They won a division in 2000. They got to the series in 02. Uh, Barry Bonds broke the all-time single-season home run mark in 01. Uh, but the uh, Dodgers broke the Giants' heart in no one as well, eliminating them on the final series of the of the season. But I think what what people thought, what San Franciscans thought, was that Dusty brought a little bit of a Dodger sensibility to the Giants' organization. And at the same time, the Dodgers sort of tailed off a little bit after 97. They, uh, they didn't win anything again until 04, and they went through some management issues. Um, but what ended up happening... It's almost as if they switch places because the Giants, with Dusty Baker's help, had more of an L.A. sensibility. And L.A., the fans started getting into the act. They started getting into the rowdy act. And uh, unfortunately, with tragic results, in, in 03, a Giants fan was shot and killed in the, par- the Dodger Stadium parking lot by a Dodger fan. And in 11, of course, Brian Stowe, very famous, very sad, was severely beaten by two Dodger fans in Dodger Stadium parking lot as well suffering uh, permanent damage. So that was tough. But in 04, the Dodgers get back off the schneid. More drama to occur in 04. Another classic. Giants and the Dodgers once again battling for the division title. Dodgers hadn't won since 95. Giants were coming off a 100-win season, oh, by the way, under Felipe Alou. They're three back with three to play. They're playing the Dodgers in Dodger Stadium. They take the first game. Now they're two back. They're ahead 3 nothing in game two. So they're three outs away from... From it all coming down to October 3rd again. And uh, ninth inning comes along. Not only the Dodgers tie it up, but they load the bases for Steve Finley, who, because it's the Dodgers and the Giants, because <laughs> drama is a prerequisite, hits a grand slam to eliminate the Giants. And there's Steve Finley celebrating his grand slam. Whatever. <laughs> so, into. This 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 uh, deep dive has lost its uh, objectivity. Yes, I'm just going to say at this point, yes. Since 2000, the Giants have won four divisional titles, four pennants. They had a 530 game home sellout streak, the best ever in the NFL. Uh, in, in the NL, they won uh, ten. They won three. Sorry, World Series. The Dodgers have won ten divisional titles, including the last seven in a row. By the way, that's and two pennants. And I know the Dodgers do feel like that they were robbed of a World Series in 2017. The evidence mm-hmm. doesn't back them up, but, John, I am not here to tell anyone how to feel. <laughs> Just want to say the evidence doesn't back them up. <laughs> now, I will say this. Nowadays, yeah. right now, where we're in, it's a little hammer and nail era. It is a bit. I believe is with us again. And uh, the Dodgers are loaded, just loaded for bear, and their farm system is loaded. Uh 
So I'm afraid it's another hammer and nail time. But somehow, somehow, some way. But as we've seen, the rival we will shine through, Johnny. Yeah, because it's also a Dodger team that hasn't quite lived up to you know, seven consecutive division titles. You'd think there'd be a World Series victory in there. And right. I know the yeah, they feel like they were screwed over and blah, 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 blah. But I think we both feel that there, there were Dodger teams that that didn't even get to the World Series that were the best team in the National League, in my mind, in some a couple of those years last that year. they didn't get there. Yeah. I mean, I would say years. last year they were by far the best team in the National League and couldn't even get out of the Division Series. Yeah, and that wasn't the only time, in my mind, that they were. So uh, right. it's uh, it's ripe now for those uh, rebuilding Giants, which they are, um, because they had a really great run. I mean, if you are going to keep, you know, a, not everyone, but if you keep a large number of guys together for an extended period of time and you have success, you're going to pay the for issue it. with that is you are going to have to experience the downtime. So, yeah. So we'll see. But, uh, you know, short season this year, and I'm sure the last series of the, of the year is Dodgers Giants in the schedule. So, who knows what could happen? <laughs> Who knows what could happen? The rivalry will continue. It always has. It's great. It's a great rivalry, and it's interesting. It was fun. It's fun for me to hear about it too, because you know I'm I'm uh, considerably younger than you. Um, <laughs> I started watching baseball. You know, your, your fandom comes around seven or eight, which for me seventy one, seventy two. So really, after seventy one, the Giants were. They didn't. They did not even figure into my thinking with Major League Baseball. There weren't a lot of games on TV, and it always seemed like in the National League it, you were going to see the Dodgers and the Cardinals. The Astros were good at that time, but I never saw the Giants play really. And uh, the same with the 49ers, that old period through the 70s. Yeah, you saw Norm Sneed start a game on Monday Night Football. I did, I did, with Dick Nolan as the head coach of, right. of the Niners. That was it. But uh, the San Francisco Giants, were they were not on my radar as a baseball team in the 70s, except every time I'd get the Slurpee Cup that had yeah. baseball players on. I always get one. I, there were two that I would always get. One was <laughs> Gary Carter with the Expos, and the other was uh, Chris Spire. Chris the, Spire. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, yeah, they weren't they weren't relative they weren't relevant to themselves. They they weren't they weren't on their own radar in the 1970s. It was rough. All right, everybody, that's, that's our deep dive. Uh, Dodgers, Giants, the best and the worst of rivals. So there it is. Uh, we got some breaking news actually from uh, Jeff, our uh, our producer, during that an ex Angels employee is charged with distributing phenytol. In connection with Tyler Skaggs' death. Oh no! So yeah, no. that boy. That's a boy. That's a, just a horrible, horrible story there. Um, and on that note, we can talk about next week's deep dive because yes. I am well into it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna look back. I'm calling it the road to Super Bowl four because that is an off forgotten Super Bowl. The game itself was not terribly competitive. The first of four losses by Minnesota in the Super Bowl, but the road to get there, what that game really, really meant, the final year of the uh, of the American Football League uh, prior to the merger, which had been decided on a number of years before, but that was the final year of the AFL. Um, the Kansas City Chiefs uh, defeat the Minnesota Vikings, Kansas City becoming the last AFL team to win a championship. So we'll talk about their story. We'll talk about how Minnesota was supposed to be an AFL city. And that that was taken away uh, by offering them an NFL franchise. Talk about how the NFL went up against the Kansas City Chiefs when they were the Dallas Texans and decided they'd throw a franchise into Dallas. There's just a lot of backstory before that. There are a lot of forgotten great players 
in uh, in, in that uh, rivalry. So that's that's what we're going to talk about the road to Super Bowl four, Mark. And, and as you mentioned, you know, it's uh, not even thought about now, but the Jets were 18 point underdogs in Super Bowl three. Yep. And the Chiefs were 12 and a half point underdogs in Super Bowl four. 12 and a half point underdogs in Super People Bowl. People were still four. under underestimating the AFL. No, no. And the other interesting thing about that that uh, uh, game was the Chiefs had only come into existence in 1960. And the Minnesota Vikings didn't come into existence until 1961. So that was a nouveau riche kind of Super Bowl as well. Yeah. Because up until that time, you had teams that had been around for a long time. The Colts were were the kind of the newcomers, the first uh, three other the AFL team, certainly. But in the NFL, the Colts didn't really come up around until the 50s. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, there for a lot of reasons, it's an interesting uh, game, not the least of which is the halftime entertainment, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Yeah, man, I'll tell you that is you, an underreported Super Bowl. Yeah. Do you, and do you remember what the halftime uh, entertainment was? I, I mean, was it someone flying in a jet pack? No, that was Super Bowl one. You remember the jet pack guys from Super what, Bowl? Was one. it, uh, up with people? Not yet, thankfully. <laughs> was was it uh, some uh, parachuting? You could go through this for hours, and you will never. I guarantee you, you will never guess what it Judy was. Judy Garland? No, that couldn't well, be. She was. She was the late Judy Garland. Did not perform, though. That would have been something. Uh, it was a reenactment of the Battle of uh, New Orleans, the War no. of eighteen twelve. Yes, no. they had a reenactment on the field of the Battle of New Orleans. Yes, because it was in Tulane. Yep. Stadium because it was in New Orleans, so they had yeah. guys dressed up and they had, you know, they shot at each other with clearly, but not live ammunition. Though, you know, who knows? If it was a Giants Dodger thing, could have been. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was part of the entertainment. Was the all right reenactment of the Battle of New Orleans? I, I, just, I gotta be honest, Mark. I don't think you're going to see that again. Uh, I don't think, <laughs> and no, not just the Battle not. of New Orleans. No battle. I don't think you're going to see a reenactment no. of the Battle of Gettysburg. I don't no. think you're going to see you know the Bulge, Fallujah. I don't think any of those things are going to be are going to be uh, reenacted during the Super Bowl halftime. No, and I for one think we're a poorer nation because of it. Yeah, I think you're right. That's you know because I've learned all the history I've learned from statues and reenactments. That's the only thing that really has taught me any history. And and who ends the Battle of the Bulge? Really? Come on now. It's good. Really good. I mean, maybe some Germans, but you know, it's a good point. It's It's a good point. It's a unifying battle. It is. It is. So I think we should we should revisit it. All right, we'll we'll revisit that. But next Friday, the road to Super Bowl four. The Super Bowl four will be back on Monday to talk actual, real, live sports. Should be some fun. NHL just rolling along. NBA as well. The ba- baseball seems to be rebooting. Hold, hold their own well. right now. Seems holding seems to be holding on. their own. And and we do have a lot of evidence that the the outbreaks were because guys did break the protocol. So maybe yep. maybe this is what's needed to keep guys in the protocol and also the PGA Championship. And Tiger enters the day today only three shots out. And uh, I realized yesterday, did not know I had ESPN Plus, so I got to watch uh, the whole Tiger-Rory uh, coupling there, uh, pairing uh, with uh, with the other wow, guy whose name escapes me right now. <laughs> yes, they're very, they're very much in love. <laughs> they were actually chatting at one point on the thing, you know, because you can hear the, the discussions now. They were actually chatting about baseball and football because I guess Rory's bag was uh, San Francisco Giants colors. And wow. Tiger mentioned that. I probably, you know, hey, you're in San Francisco, yeah, you're trying to guess. I mean, he's a, he's a no-cal guy. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was an A's fan, but of course, you know, he's an A's really? fan. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah, shoot. Yeah, come on. I'm just uh, Of course he is. That's, that's just for Nana's birthday. You're pretending to hate Oakland. 
Yeah, I mean, if he's now, what is he? He was born in uh, what seventy seven, I think, something like that. He's forty three. Yeah, yeah. So seventy seven. So that means, yeah. So when he when he was coming of age as a sports fan, it was the Bash Brothers time. Yeah, yeah. So, so no wonder he's an Ace fan. Of, of course. And then he moved to L.A., and I'm sure he was a Dodgers fan after that. Ooh, so. boy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, David and Lenny, for commenting as well. You've been listening to After Further Review with Mark Ferreira, John Pelkey, Jeff Taylor. Have a good weekend, everyone. Stay safe.